0: Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and I'd like to welcome you to Episode 402 of the FCPA Compliance Report. Today, I have back Stephen Martin. Stephen is a partner at Arnold & Porter, and we take on the Petrobras FCPA Enforcement Action. But first, a word from today's sponsor, the Compliance Masterclass. Are you interested in the most comprehensive compliance training class around? want to hear from a true subject matter expert in the nuts and bolts of compliance, then my Doing Compliance Masterclass training is the compliance training class for you. It is unlike any other class being offered. The Compliance Masterclass is not theory or analytical underpinnings of the FCPA. The focus of the Compliance Masterclass is on the operationalization of compliance, or it is only in the doing of compliance that companies have a real chance of avoiding FCPA liability. I hope you will consider my Doing Compliance Masterclass. The next class will be held in New York City on November 12 and 13th. For more information, check out my site, www.fcpacompliancereport.com. In this podcast, Stephen and I take a look at how the Petrobras was able to sustain a fabulous result, which was a non-prosecution agreement and no monitor. They also are now the largest FCPA fine in history. A fascinating exploration, lots of lessons for the compliance practitioner. I know you will enjoy it. The FCPA Compliance Report is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, and we are back for another live podcast recording from Moderno's Tex-Mex and Tacos. Today I have Stephen Martin with me. Stephen has traveled down from Denver to speak to us today at Modernos about the Petrobras FCPA settlement. So Stephen, welcome. Thanks. Good to see you, Tom, and great to be here and having some great Mexican food with you. Excellent. Excellent. So Stephen, um, this is certainly one of the most significant FCPA settlements we've had uh, this year and perhaps uh, over the past couple of years. Uh, it's really a stunner in terms of, for me, the pervasive nature of the corrupt conduct. We had a, uh, for those who may not know, PMAX is the national energy company of Brazil, government owned, boards of directors were appointed by uh, the uh, uh, political party in power. And there was corruption literally at the highest level, from the board of directors to senior management, all the way down. Uh, Even in my corporate career, I bumped up against corruption at at Pemex in a variety of ways. Their tentacles reached literally across the globe. Uh, Even in in, in, we're here in Houston, corruption issues here in Houston, Keppel offshore in Singapore, SBM offshore in uh, in, uh, the Netherlands, Rolls-Royce in England, Uh, as broad a conduct as uh, we have seen, literally in any FCPA enforcement action probably since Siemens. We um, had the largest FCPA fine and penalty of $1.78 uh, excuse me $1.87 billion, of which 80% went to the uh, Brazilian authorities, 10% kept by the Department of Justice, 10% kept by the Securities and Exchange Commission as profit disgorgement. However, that was credited to the $2.95 billion shareholder action against Petrobras USA. So some numbers that basically look like you and me standing next to a 747 on its tail, all leading to what I see as just a fabulous result for Petrobras, an NPA with no monitor, even with the huge fine. So, having laid out uh, kind of how bad it is, maybe we could explore this case to see what lessons a compliance practitioner, a corp- uh, corporate compliance function, a CCO, or a board of directors might draw from this case, or uh, outside counsel, in uh, either cooperating with the Department of Justice or in remediating during the pendency of any investigation. So, uh, any, any, wherever you'd like to start. No.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I, I, obviously, the first thing is when you're a 50 percent owned government entity, and then a political party controls the board of directors, and then starts asking for money to fund political operations, you're going to probably have a problem, um, you know. But this has been Operation Car Wash. It's been a huge investigation. You know, it swept through the entire country. Um, you know, it, it was involved two of the you know main political um, leaders of the country. You know, in terms of the bribes and the corruption, were there. Um, it had impacts on uh, the growth of Brazil, um, impacting it in a negative sense, as well as, you know, internationally from a bribery and corruption standpoint. And so you had a very significant investigation going on in Brazil, significant investigation going on in the U.S., um, and widespread corruption throughout the political apparatus, um, affecting one of the biggest um, economic drivers of the country, you know, which by itself is not what you normally see in these bribery investigations.
0: Right. So uh, from the, I guess, let's start with the outside counsel perspective. If an outside counsel is presented with this, uh, say someone came to you and said, we need some help, how do you get them ready for this type of investigation?
1: Well, you know, getting them ready for the investigation is not really how it works. Um, It's Taking taking control of the investigation, you know, because what happens here, it's they didn't self disclose this to Department of Justice or to Brazilian authorities. This was an investigation that uncovered and then went through multiple layers. So multiple companies, multiple people, multiple political um, associations, and you know, so it would be the first step is an outside counsel is just getting control of the investigation, understanding what's happening and what the facts are, because it was fast moving and widespread, and so you know, it wasn't one where you could control the investigation and then report to the Department of Justice. You know, here you had people um, banging down doors, literally, and trying to, um, you know, get information. So the outside counsel, the first step would have had to both the local Brazilian counsel and the law law firms that were working on the U.S. side, you know, really understand what's happening here, figure out who the bad actors were inside the organization, because, you know, in this case, it was board of directors and every one of the top senior executives. Uh, You know, so it's very difficult in terms of who your client is and how you're going to deal with that organization um, and conduct the internal investigation.
0: So in addition to the internal investigation, you've got to try to uh, put in a remediation plan, begin remediation, and then remediate. Is that typically something that uh, the investigative law firm Uh, would do, or would that actually be uh, another law firm perhaps working in parallel?
1: Right. So that's a great question. I mean, outside of the Petrobras investigation, I mean, let's talk about that a little bit more generally. Um, Often you will see um, law firms try to do both the investigation and the remediation. I think that's often a mistake. Um, You know, the uh, White collar partners or people that are doing this are really focused on the investigation, and, and they're going to be dealing with a lot of issues, uh, both on individual defendants, pot- potentially cooperating witnesses, the management, the board, um, interacting with government authorities. You know, and th- their specialty, frankly, is not compliance and understanding and f- how effective compliance work program works and the remediation, the oversight, and monitoring. Uh, so, I think you know, look clients, I think, are best served if you have two different people doing that. Right, one that can really focus on proactive where the company's going to go, the remediation, the steps that DOJ is going to want to see and can spend the time just on the compliance program, while the investigative team is really working on, you know, reactive, the the prior facts, what's happening, and try and resolve that for the company. Um, To me, that is by far the best approach. I mean, I've watched it be done both ways, and it's much better if you have somebody who, A, knows compliance and compliance program effectiveness, and B, that can just focus on that portion of the remediation, you know, risk assessment, design and enhancement of the compliance program. I'm working with the third parties to enhance that from a risk profile, you know, especially when you're talking about international companies, and it can be hard to get transparency or see things around the world from an operational standpoint. Um, there's so much going on that you can't, investigative counsel will not put enough emphasis or priority into the compliance program remediation because they're trying to deal with the investigation, um, you know, so you're much better served to do that.
0: So one other factor we have in this case that I think has existed for some time, But it really literally exploded with this one, which is the cooperation between foreign investigators, and we're going to talk about the cooperation in the foreign enforcement action, the penalty phase of it. But uh, we had uh, talked to any of the DOJ guys. They say they or WhatsApp, or they tweet, or they're in constant communication with their Brazilian counterparts. They can't speak well enough of their Brazilian counterparts. So does that present you as either... Uh, the lead investigative outside counsel or trying to head up a remediation with additional challenges?
1: You know, anytime you're dealing in an international context, especially with multinationals that are not headquartered or based in the U.S., um, it's more of a challenge. You, you know, in, from an investigative standpoint, you have, you know, language and culture challenges. You have... Uh, challenges in gathering information. You have data protection and privacy challenges, depending on what jurisdiction you're in. So from an investigative standpoint, there's a lot of things you have to deal with internationally. Uh, from a compliance perspective, you know the, the elements of a compliance program are well understood, and you can go in and operate and try to rebuild those from a remediation standpoint. Um, but I would say in a lot of markets, they're still behind the U.S. on understanding how important compliance is, especially the more sophisticated parts of a compliance program. So that's probably the number one challenge you see from a remediation standpoint. I talk a lot about government enforcement, and you know, over the last ten years, especially, you've seen the Department of Justice really work internationally with investigative agencies around the world, especially in the bribery and corruption context, to be working hand in hand. You know, much more of a joint enforcement type. This is an exceptionally um, interesting case from that perspective because Brazil was really taking the lead on it, as opposed to the U.S. taking the lead and other regulatory bodies following the U.S. action because this was so Brazil-centric, because of the company, because of the political parties that were involved. Um, you know, this was much more of a Brazil-led investigation at the end of the day, and you can see that from the resulting, um, you know, settlement here. Uh, but it shows really total cooperation by the Department of Justice, and in fact, you know, really showing uh, a bit of a deferral here, you know, in terms of what you're doing from an investigation standpoint and from a fine standpoint to the Brazilian authorities, which you, which you haven't seen before.
0: So I've heard you talk several times about investigations. I've heard Partners of yours talk about investigations, and the one clear theme they've always talked about is credibility with the prosecutors, Uh, starting with literally your first phone call through every interaction, through uh, the time the settlement's inked. Uh, Do you see uh, that type of credibility by the Brazilian prosecutors with the U.S. prosecutors in this case?
1: You know, I wasn't I wasn't involved in this directly in those conversations, so you know I can't speak specifically to the individuals here. But I mean, it's clear from the settlement agreement and from watching the investigation and what's been happening is that. Um, the U.S. Department of Justice certainly understand that the Brazilian authorities were able to conduct an investigation and in, in what has been a really a thorough investigation, and that they were truly a partner in this, as opposed to just a tag-along enforcement agency from another country. You know, when when you see an issue happen in Brazil, but the U.S. is leading the investigation, you know, here it was all Brazil-centric, and, you know, they were working hand-in-hand as partners. In fact, it looks, you know, that much more of the Brazilian authorities were taking the lead, which means the U.S. side, they at least trusted them and understood that they could investigate and we're willing to, you know, both work with their U.S. counsel and the Brazilian counterparts down in from the Enforcement Bureau to um, investigate this and reach a resolution. Uh,
0: when you have a case of uh, this magnitude or, or any massive case, uh, one of the things that we cl- uh, see in a lot of settlement. Uh, Documents is extensive cooperation that uh, investigation counsel and the client has given to the department, and they talk about things like uh, synthesizing evidence, making presentations around not only the facts of the case but documents that are relevant, witnesses that are relevant, witness testimony that's relevant. How do you? How do you? Uh, So I've uh, been in trial before, I've had to put trial uh, notebooks together to make a presentation to a jury. Is it that kind of process, but synthesizing massive amounts of information, or is it some other type of process to present to the government?
1: You know, at the end of the day, I mean, you're giving kind of rolling updates on the information depending on how much the company is cooperating, but you will do formal presentations, you know, to the lead prosecutors and ultimately the supervisors of the fraud section or the U.S. Attorney's Office is leading it, Um, you know, and I've done this a number of times, and so you will literally come in, and there are kind of two presentations. One is kind of the interim findings as you go along, and, and you know, showing them your investigative plan, um, how that's operating. And then showing them some of the initial findings you have. You may show key documents. You may show financial transactions, other information. Because if you're fully cooperating, then you're going to open up everything. And then you will come to a point where you're trying to work for a resolution and you will do a full presentation then on the investigation, you know, all the steps you took, the people that were interviewed, the people that were implicated, um, the type of money that's being talked about, third-party consultants potentially, where the payments were going, and you will outline all of that, you know, for the Department of Justice so that you can show both a comprehensive investigation so that they'll believe and trust and and give you credibility for that um, because you don't want them coming in and continuing to do it. You're trying to put an end to the the, uh, issues. Um, You'll show them what remediation activity you've taken in terms of the individuals that were involved, because that's a critical part now under the Yates memorandum and the focus of the Department of Justice, not just going after the corporate entity, but really the individuals. And so making sure there's a clean break from the company and that those people are not going to continue on with the business, especially if they're in management or board of director roles. Um, and then often, uh, but not always, because not, not everybody will do it, is you'll also be talking about the remediation of the compliance program at the same thing, time and telling them all the steps you've taken to improve, you know, the internal controls, the financial controls, the third parties, how, you, you know, risk assessment, training, you know, and the various steps that you've taken to remediate this issue so it's not going to happen going forward. Um, and that's what you're trying to do to minimize the penalty, to get a deferred prosecution agreement, to not have a monitor, you know, taking those steps, especially if you didn't self disclose the issue. Because if you didn't self-disclose the issue, then, you know, kind of this free pass idea from the Department of Justice isn't going to work. And so then it's all about cooperation, level cooperation, and the credibility you have with the department.
0: So let's move to the remediation now. Uh, What do you see in this uh, enforcement action that makes the remediation either unique or something that helped
1: drive the Discount given to Petrobras and the overall fine and penalty. Well, I think it's interesting because when you look at the you know the non-prosecution agreement, um, they talk about the company not receiving credit for self-disclosure because they didn't self-disclose this, but that they did get full credit under the guidelines uh, by the Department of Justice for cooperation with the fraud section, inc- including real time. And they talk about that. What I thought was very interesting is how um, how much detail they provided about the the steps that the company had taken um, from the compliance review. Standpoint. So, you know, at least looking at these documents, you got to give a lot of credit to Petrobras's outside counsel here and um, making sure that they were handling both the investigation effectively but also the compliance program portion. Um, because you know, they replaced all the board of directors, they replaced the senior management, um, they revamped the compliance function, they created a new department of the division of governance and compliance. Um, you couldn't that person couldn't be terminated without an affirmative vote of the board members re- representing a minority of the shareholders, so not the government-owned ones. Um, they implemented a kind of four eyes approval policy that would require a second review of supervisors that are not connected to the dealer transaction so that they could do it. That's unusual in corporate America. Um, they created new investment procedures, new approval matrices. Um, they went on to do a lot of different things around policies and procedures that you would have, um, training, um, you know, new updates to both the board directors and the executive board, created an ethics committee that would be separate from the compliance department. Um, you you know, and disciplining, you know, the employees that had violated this. And so, you know, it was, it was pretty, it looks like pretty substantial, um, remediation activities that taken place during the investigation, which is great, because two mistakes people make is they don't take the compliance remediation seriously during the investigation, um, or they don't do it at all, right, until you're about ready to settle, and by then it's too late. You know, ideally, you're going to go into the Department of Justice with your full findings from the investigation, and then also a full presentation, ideally by another person that hasn't been doing the investigation, about all the extensive remediation that's been done. So that really leads up to what I really wanted to ask you, which is uh, the the
0: Petrobras got an NPA out of this. They yeah, they did. Didn't even get a deferred prosecution agreement, let alone have to have the U.S. subsidiary plead guilty.
1: So, especially for a huge penalty.
0: Especially for a huge penalty, and if you tie in the shareholder suit, I mean, we're we're up um, close to uh, certainly over three billion. Uh, so, and I. Think three billion is still real money, right? It seems to be real money (laughs) even today. So, uh, how would how can you begin to uh, consider an NPA in this situation?
1: Yeah, you know, it's really an interesting decision by the fraud department here, and. Um, When you look at it, you know, 10 percent went to the Department of Justice of the fine, 10 percent went to the SEC and the rest of it was going to go to the Brazilian authorities for whatever resolution and fine would come out of that enforcement action there. You know, and so that that's a clear indication that at the end of the day, the Department of Justice deferred, you know, both the significant fine, but also really the prosecutorial um, result here to the Brazilian government. Uh, You know, to me, it's probably an indication of a couple things. One, this investigation is really led by the Brazilian authorities, you know, with the connection to the FCPA because of the international work that was being done and prosecutors could bring FCPA charges. But again, this is really Brazilian, Brazilian company, uh, Brazilian state owned, uh, 50 percent of it, political party in Brazil. And so I think the Department of Justice deferred to the Brazilian authorities here in terms of, you know, the result as well as the investigation. Um, the second one is, I think they probably got real credit for how much they cooperated once they came into the Department of Justice, both on the investigation standpoint and on the compliance standpoint, um, because it does surprise me, as it did you, that, you know, there's no monitor in place here, um, you know, especially given the widespread corruption that was involved. I mean, this involved all of the board of directors and all of the senior management and political parties and, and real money, at, you know, changing hands. I mean, the significant, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars, at you know, in, in, uh, Um, And I think we saw at one point it was up to $2 billion, potentially, in bribes that could have been paid. And, you know, that's incredible. I mean, you just don't don't generally see that in in these FCPAs, even in the major ones. Um, You know, so I think the indication here is that they really deferred this to the Brazilian authorities. And, um, you know, it'll be interesting to see what Brazil does in terms of whether they appoint a separate monitor um, or whether they have any other type of um, controls around, you know, Petrobras going forward, just because, you know, it's 50% owned government, uh, state-owned Um, You know, the thing that was interesting to me, too, is that the the company, Petrobras, at least in the U.S., is going to be able to self-report. So instead of being having a monitor or even an independent compliance consultant or even having somebody just, you know, retained separately to report to the Department of Justice, the company's going to be able to do that, presumably through their outside counsel, and they're going to be required to file, you know, a report on their compliance program um, once a year for three years. And so, you know, that's not, um, that's not a very substantial impact on a company given this kinds of these kinds of findings here and the results. The... Um it seems like this case, uh, maybe it's it's
0: so unique on its facts and circumstances that we can't say it's going to be a game changer. But it would seem to be to be kind of the culmination of, of a lot of things both the department and SEC has talked about over the past several years, starting with this increase in. Uh, uh, sharing investigations internationally, cooperation internationally, the relationships the DOJ and SEC has built up with their counterparts in other uh, countries. then we move to really a shared enforcement um, penalty. And going forward, I'm wondering if this will be a kind of a bellwether on the model that the DOJ will use on on truly massive cases that are international in scope as opposed to perhaps a U.S.-centric company or a U.S. company, rather, that is limited in scope to one or two different countries where they may have engaged in bribery and
1: corruption? Yeah, I mean, I think this is a very different case, right? I mean, this is, while DOJ has jurisdiction over um, non-U.S. multinationals that have connections or do business in the U.S., right? And we all know that from FCPA standpoint. That is a very different thing than a U.S. multinational publicly traded company that's operating around the world that would violate the law. Um, you know, so I, I don't think you can compare the two. I think here, you know, because of the unique Brazilian nature of this and the state-owned nature of it and the political parties, again, um, I think DOJ did defer to the to, to the counterparts. I think it shows great cooperation. I think that is something that the Department of Justice is interested in continuing to pursue because it helps them in other cases, right? The more you develop with Brazil and the more you share on our, what's truly a Brazil issue, you know, then Brazil is going to cooperate more on what might be a more U.S. multinational uh, company in Brazil, you know, where the FCPA is, is implicated and, you know, the DOJ is really focused on uh, that kind of case. Uh, so I think it's going to be hard to draw parallels. Um, you know, I think some people will probably think about whether this administration has... Um, less interest in enforcement on businesses, whether they're not going to be as proactive about monitorships. And I don't think you can read into this. I think this case is just unique on that front because um, you've seen other cases where they've come up with huge fines for um, companies. I mean, you saw one recently that was um, the Panasonic case, you know, where it was a Panasonic U.S.-based entity that had engaged in this. But obviously, Panasonic is, you know, is a non us um, Japanese company, and they did put a monitor in place uh, in that situation, which was not nearly as significant as the case that we have here. So, um, you know, I think you're going to see kind of a different result depending on the type of cases that come, and this one's just unique.
0: Perhaps we could conclude with some thoughts on how uh, this case would go to the tactical level of the individual CCO, compliance functionaire, or board of directors were caught in an uh, FCPA violation. Do you see... I guess the takeaway I would have is no matter how bad it is that if you meet some of the prongs laid out in the new FCPA corporate enforcement policy, you can at least be eligible for a discount. So here we have a discount of 25% based upon uh, the extensive investigation and cooperation and then the extensive remediation. Of course, we have profit disgorgement. Uh, do you think those kinds of lessons can be learned or at least derived from this case
1: as well? You know, this is always an interesting question in the compliance world, right? Because, you know, the return on investment on your compliance program, a lot of companies think they're never to get into trouble. And, you know, as a number of compliance officers out there know, it's always budget constraints and issues. I mean, to me, this is a continuing narrative now about justice showing people like, look, if you have a compliance program, a pre-existing compliance program, and there's a mistake that happens in your company, you're well suited to have that program in place and have it be uh, effective because that will protect the company in terms of, you know, not even having a resolution or a settlement, let alone the kind of discounts that you have. Um, the second thing is it clearly signals that if you are in trouble, you you know, the more you can clean up your program and work with Department of Justice and show them how sophisticated you've done, um, that's going to help as well. You know, and so, you know, we kind of have this continuing debate about companies or boards of directors taking this message from Department of Justice seriously. I mean, here's a clear indication, you got a 25% benefit by Coming in and really having a remediation program in place to do something. Um, But I, you know, I always strongly encourage companies to really look at what you can do before there's an issue. You know, because you never know what's going to pop up. And I talk about compliance programs in two ways. One is to protect yourself from a government enforcement action, right? And protect the company and the board if you have rogue employees doing something stupid. And that's great. You should be thinking about that. But more important, you should think about from the ethical context how do you do business the right way? Reducing risk, enhancing profitability, having a compliance compliance program that's effective in helping the business operate at that level because then you don't have to really worry about violating the law. And so I'd much prefer companies to be thinking about how proactively this is going to help the company, you know, enhance the profitability and reduce the risk than just on the government enforcement action. But clearly there's a message coming from DOJ and the SEC about, you know, pre-existing compliance program being affected and if not putting one in place, you know, once you find out there are issues to make sure that you handle them appropriately.
0: Stephen, unfortunately, we're near the end of our time, but this has been a great exploration of the Petrobras case. Thanks for uh, coming down. I look forward to uh, continuing the conversation. Yeah, it'd be great. Anytime. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. If you want more information on the Petrobras FCPA settlement, you can check out my three-part podcast, excuse me, three-part blog post series that I wrote on the case. Also, I have a white paper Coming out on corporate compliance insights on the case, uh, hopefully uh, shortly after this podcast is released. Also, please uh, think about my compliance masterclass next month in New York. If you have any desire to increase your knowledge on the nuts and bolts of operationalizing a best practice compliance program, this is the case for you. I hope that you will join us again next week for another episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. The FCPA compliance report is a part of the compliance podcast network.